This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I hope your morning's not too soggy. It's a bit wet out there, a bit cool as well, but it is almost winter. Uh, we're going to talk school funding now. And after years of the coalition resisting the Gonski needs-based model for funding our schools last week, the federal government fully embraced it. And Professor David Gonski was even part of the announcement. Uh, compared to Labor, the government's not committing as much funding to schools. Uh, and it's been criticised for that by some, but it does seem to be proposing a more kind of pure needs-based system But have they done enough to end the school funding wars, which have been alive and well for many years? Uh, Pete Goss is with the Grattan Institute and he's the school education program director over there. He thinks about these things all the time and it's great to have you back on Triple R, Pete. Nice to see you, Carly and Dylan. And, uh, I mean, you've suggested a similar way to this, what the the coalition government has taken. You've sort of suggested they could do this, have Gonski and have it cost less money. Are you happy with what you've seen be announced from the federal government? I'm really encouraged. There's still more details to come and I haven't seen the details of the model, um, but I thought that it was affordable as a nation to deliver needs-based funding for, for the amount of money that was on the table last year with some compromises. This year they've put in a bit more money than in the previous budget, much less than Labor, and I'm sure we'll get to that, um, but they've done it in a way that is more consistent and pure and is, uh, is the most optimistic thing that I've seen for a while. Of course, some of the stakeholders are starting to scream pretty loudly already, um, but from a policy perspective, there's really a lot to like in this. And some of that screaming has come from the opposition as well. I heard Chris Bowen kind of talking about um, negative uh, in terms of the, the Catholic schools not getting as much money as they were previously under Labor's Gonski plan. But do you think this will um, feasibly put an end to the school funding wars as uh, Prime Minister Turnbull says it would? I think they, that is all, was always a long shot, but was always something really worth aspiring to. Um, that Australia has made a sport of arguing over school funding. If it was an Olympic Games, we'd be the gold medalists of uh, school funding arguments. The best countries in the world don't spend their time about this. They spend their time talking about how to improve school education. And one of the reasons I got involved in this is because that's what we need to do. We have to get past this. Will this help us get past it? Um, Possibly. Lenore Taylor on Insiders on the weekend put this in a beautiful way, that there is now agreement about the underlying model um, on the principles of Gonski and even the formula. There's disagreement over the amount of money. But having agreement over the model is a really good place to have rational policy in the national interest. And then if different parties want to say, sure, but I'll do it sooner or I'll take a bit longer, that's fine. That's the way that politics should work um, in the national interest. Yeah, so the formula um, based on this schooling resource standard, which I'd love you to explain, but I suppose before we get there, Is there more or less money for schools? Because we're hearing both. We're hearing there's more money for schools and then we're also hearing there's less money for schools. So which which one is it? It all depends on your frame of reference and it won't surprise you that each of the different parties who has an interest in this is trying to set the the, terms of reference in the way that is most favourable for them. So what the coalition is saying is that compared to the 2016 budget, there is more money. That's true, about $2.6 billion over four years. 
That in turn was more money than in the 2014 budget. So it is a little ironic to hear Tony Abbott saying, oh, but I would have done better than this when his budget was much less generous. Then Labor is saying this is much less generous than we would have done. And that is also true, that their policy at the last election would have put in about $22 billion more. These are huge sums, um, but there's a lot of students. About $22 billion more over a decade. One of the crucial elements here is what does the legislation say? Because there is federal legislation that affects how much the Commonwealth Government puts in. It would have been more generous than this current deal. But one of the big findings from my report last year is that the legislation was far too generous. And the reason for that is because we have slow wages growth, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, and therefore the same amount of money would go further. The coalition has adopted that way of thinking um, and, a, and, and put in more money so that they can actually have a credible plan going forward. And in some of your commentary that I've read uh, in the wake of this announcement, you've, you've said that this package more effectively sends money to the right places than Labor's previous policy did. I wonder if you can talk about that. How does it, how does it do so? So this gets to this funny thing called the schooling resource standard that this is a formula that tries to take into account how much funding per student every school needs. It starts off by saying, let's have a base level of funding for every student. It's about $10,000 for primary school students, about $12,000 for secondary school students. And the argument is that in a school that had no particular disadvantage, that amount would be enough to deliver a high-quality education. Now, of course, students in many schools do have some challenges. When you've got students with a low socioeconomic background, they would get more money for that called a loading. There are also loadings for students who have a background where they don't speak English at home, students um, with a disability, um, Indigenous students, and then also for schools that are either very small or quite remote because their cost base is higher. So every school has a distinct level of target funding per student, and that's what's called the schooling resource standard. Just to make it more tricky, for government schools, the goal is to get all of their funding to that level. For non-government schools, Catholic systemic schools and independent schools, that amount is reduced, the base amount is reduced by another part of a formula that says, how much do we think the parents have the capacity to contribute. Getting back to the original question, um, it's more pure because it's saying the federal government will use that formula for every single school in the country regardless of where they are. So is it a good formula because we need it to be good, don't we, if that's going to be the basis of everything of needs base? Is this the formula that that, um, Professor Gonski put forward himself or is this something that's come later? Again, with these things, uh, it's a bit of a yes and no, Carlia. For your your listeners, they might be interested to uh, learn that I spent three months looking at this uh, last year um, during the whole time of which my brain hurt. So it's not a black box. (laughs) We can actually see how this has worked out. We can, but it does take an awful lot of digging. Um, And I I put a report out which is available on the Grattan website called Circuit Breaker for those that want to follow that up. Is it a good formula or is it what Gonski said? Um, the, the shape of the formula, the idea of having a base level of funding and then loadings for different types of disadvantage, 
is very sensible and that's very close to what David Gonski and his panel recommended. There's a challenge in then how do you put the exact numbers around that? How do you say what level of base funding? How much funding should go to students with disadvantage and where? And there were a range of tweaks as Labor went from the Gonski review into the legislation. I'm happy to talk through those, but other people have described them well. I've argued that the formula does need to be reviewed and potentially revised, but that's about more of the details and, you know, how much uh, how much extra per student with a, from a low SES background. I've argued strongly we need to keep the shape of the formula and keep its current bones because we now do have bipartisan agreement on it and, and we need to stick with that if we are ever going to move past these funding wars. Yeah, and uh, Pete Goth is with us. He's School Education Program Director at the Grattan Institute and we're trying to get our head around the Gonski 2.0, trying to give you some information, um, I suppose, to, to guide your thinking on this. Um, it sounds like we should be happy with it. It sounds like some of the wars or at least some of the battles might be over with regards to education funding, although the amount in the envelope um, is smaller than under Labor, but the, the formula at least uh, around school funding is now supported by um, both the major parties. And I I wonder if we can bring it back to the states and the territories because uh, as uh, the, the education minister in New South Wales put it really succinctly, I thought, last week, which was, we don't have a war with this, the federal government. We have an agreement with them. And this um, Gonski deal goes till 2018. Uh, do they still have the same agreement there? And do we in Victoria still have the same agreement with the federal government over, over Gonski? It was a beautiful line from Rob Stokes. Yeah, I like um, it. <laughs> and, of course, uh, he's then trying to create his frame of reference, which is... Well, under, they've been big supporters, haven't they, of Gonski? Yeah. Absolutely, and they've delivered on their part of it. Um, his frame of reference is the one that's most favourable for New South Wales. Um, there is federal legislation which constrains what the Commonwealth Government can do, and then there are deals with different states... Um, what I understand, I'm not a constitutional law expert, my boss is, what I understand is that uh, those deals with the states can be changed if the federal government wants to. And this federal government clearly wants to. And one of the reasons why is that um, when the Gonski report was turned into legislation and the, the negotiations that Julia Gillard did with the various states, they said, together the Commonwealth and the states and territories are going to lift schools to the target level of funding. And on one level, that's quite appropriate because all schools get money both from the Commonwealth Government and from the states. Uh, independent and Catholic schools get more from the Commonwealth Government, government schools get more from the states. But any time where you've got different levels of government having to work together on a, on a long-term basis, there's always the risk of arguments. And what is one of the really, uh, really clever things about this model and why they had to put a bit more money in compared to the previous budget is the uh, Simon Birmingham has said broadly, this will be a Commonwealth only model. We are going to do our thing. We're going to use the same formula we agreed. We're going to provide all non-government schools with 80% of their, their individual SRS target, and that's higher on average than today. It goes up from 77 to 80%. We're going to provide all government schools with 20% of their target, and that's going up from 17 And so the Commonwealth Government is saying, we are going to be completely consistent. States, 
you can't put less money in over time, but you do have some flexibility to say, do you want to invest more money in schooling or do you want to invest more money in health or to repair the budget? So states get back some flexibility and this removes some of the potential future arguments. And I mean, as uh, anyone would know, funding has dominated debates around the school system in Australia for some time. But I mean, in international rankings, the educational, I guess, achievement of Australian students has been slipping for some time. Are you satisfied that with this broader funding package, which is will result in more money being delivered to schools than the existing policy that we had, will actually uh, relate to or, or um, lead to an improvement in, in teacher training and ultimate student achievement? It will help in two ways. Um, First, the money that we're spending will go in a way that is more targeted to where it will make the most difference. And that's important because the best international evidence that I've seen says when disadvantaged schools get more money, they do better. Of course, it's important how money is spent. And that's one of the huge reasons we need to move on from this squabbling over funding onto how do we lift the effectiveness of teaching in every classroom. I don't think that that will come out of the funding. The review that David Gonski has been asked to do is not actually to go back and look at the funding model again. It's to say, what do we need to do to improve? And what I'm going to be arguing over the next few months is that we need to think about that in a different way. So for many years, um, the way we thought about how to improve schools was that the central education departments or others would, would define the best way of doing it and the goal for schools was just to follow that or to invest in teachers. We kind of pushed the inputs and said, how do you do that better? But we didn't really see the outcomes improve. Then we flipped. As a nation, we said, we're going to track the outcomes really carefully. We're going to look at these international results and NAPLAN, um, and parents can choose and a range of other things. But actually, and we want the, the outcomes to improve, but you can't improve the outcomes without actually doing the right things going into it. What I'll be arguing for is that we need to think about educational improvement in a way that is much more adaptive, where... Decisions do get made locally, but education systems help schools to make good decisions. I think there are good parallels for this in areas of business, in areas of health, and uh, and this is part of what will help turn teaching into a really rigorous profession. That's my vision. And so what we have seen, though, I mean, we, we heard Tony Abbott say that, you know, there's this is a big turnaround and there's going to be a, a Barney or whatever in the in the party room this week. OK, so that might happen. But really, the, the, the federal government has buried the hatchet that they agree now that money does make a difference because they've been saying yes. this government has been arguing that money doesn't make a difference. It's the teaching quality. But this is saying money does make a difference. It's going to be there and now now we can move on. So we can maybe cross our fingers and toes and hope that these the fights that we're now seeing with the Catholic education system and, and others and states will um, lead to something positive. I'm crossing my fingers and toes and uh, we need to understand the details. Labor, no doubt, will uh, say that they would put more money into it. But if they're saying we'll put more money in on the same underlying basis, hey, that's actually a really good political debate to be having. And if Labor wins the next election, they can give it more money. Same formula. 
Indeed. Thanks for coming in and on no doubt we'll speak to you again and um, especially leading up to uh, 2018 when the, the next Gonski, maybe 3.0, is going to be negotiated. <laughs> um, Pete Goss is uh, with the Grattan Institute. Thanks for coming in, Pete. The Yirrumboy First Nations Festival officially kicked off last week and there's so many great things happening as part of the festival. It's a huge program this year which uh, runs until May the 14th and uh, one of those events is Cool and Tide Strings, an imagining of musical harmony between Indigenous and Western sounds of the 18th century. It's a collaboration between string quartet Silo SQ and James Henry and uh, you may know James's work with the Black Arm Band. He's also a musician and solo artist in his own right. He's a composer, he's a sound artist, sound designer. He does it all and we're uh, very pleased to have him here in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Yeah, no, good to be back. I know, we used to get you on all the time when you were running song lines and being a deadly broadcaster on K&D. Yeah, well, well, I guess when when I was working in that building, I was, I guess, amongst it all and I would get all this information, you know, coming in about community events and uh, particularly working with Songlines. We were doing a lot of work, uh, you know, trying to make things happen and and having uh, close contact with a lot of artists. So then it was great to, you know, pop in here once a month and be able to share it with, the, um, I guess, the non-Aboriginal community, music-loving uh, music public. And, I mean, you've got your fingers in so many pies, you really work across a whole range of different genres, but um, this one is a collaboration with a string quartet. How did that all come about? Yeah, well, I, I guess when I first started writing music, it was... Um you know, writing for the string quartet, you know, back in high school, uh, I guess we started learning about Mozart and uh, Beethoven, Bach, and I guess met, made our way through the um, through the eras. And um, I guess it was, you know, when, when I first got inspired to write music, uh, I think we, we might have had to write a couple of things for uh, some projects and then I just found myself doing it in my own time uh, for the fun of it. Um, and I, I think it was just at the start of where I guess you could kind of have uh, like MIDI and uh, and have computers playing what you write uh, easily enough. So, um, yeah, uh, when I left high school, I didn't really have, uh, you know, contact with, uh, you know, string players or um, uh, even computer access to be able to, you know, make this music. So, yeah, it's just been great to, you know, have this opportunity uh, that Jacob gave, uh, Jacob gave me to uh, put together something. I thought, oh, yeah, let's uh, do something for string quartet. So, you, I mean, you play guitar and, I mean, you're, you know, a musician, but do you play... Um other string instruments like do you do you know how to play the viola or no no, no i'm um but you can compose for them yeah yeah because uh yeah you know, i guess being a big fan of uh classical music uh i i feel that i've uh you know developed a bit of an understanding of uh you know what uh what is capable what you know sounds good to uh, my ear at least and uh then also you know having a chance to uh you know write and try things out um I guess, you know, enabled me to, you know, be able to, you know, produce something. Uh, at the same time, though, um, I've been working closely with the cello player, um, Carwin Martin. Uh, she's a composer in her own right. And, um, yeah, so it was great to be able to sit with her and work out, you know, what's technically possible or, you know, what might, you know, sonically, you know, be better with, you know, her, I guess, you know, much more 
um, well, much greater understanding yeah. of uh, uh, string quartets. Does, does it change what you write when you're not going to be playing in an auditorium where, you know, where, where there's no sound, you know, often with string quartets, if you see them play, it's a very silent environment, but you're actually performing in the foyer at the recital centre, not in the, yeah. the main auditorium. Is that Does that change what you write? Um, well, well, I guess probably what was the uh, like the main thing uh i guess having singers uh you know singing along with, with the songs uh like particularly with the, the the format that it uh that it is i guess you know using songs from um uh you know tan Derham where i i guess you know when you're used to seeing uh, aboriginal you know traditional singers and there you're having to be in that you know situation where you know you have some dancers that are um I guess dancing for the singers or you know coming towards them and you have you might have a lot of people around uh there isn't really that opportunity for the um for the real quiet stuff you know you really have to belt out and and get the get the sound uh to be heard by as many people as possible so I guess having these songs and these formats uh you know that that was the I guess the main thing that dictated the the dynamic of of the piece so um I guess you know within the foyer situation, of course, we'd love to get you know, people to be as quiet as possible. Uh, you know, having said that, um, you know, we will all be you know playing with a lot of uh, you know gusto and uh, you know trying to um, you know make ourselves heard by um, you know everyone in the in, in the place. And when you began this collaboration, did you go in there with some ideas or, or ideas for songs that you kind of started with, or did you both kind of? begin from a clean slate and, and go from there? Yeah, well, I worked uh, on the Tandarum, uh, which was the, uh, which is the opening for the Melbourne Festival. And I guess we had to, we had to go to the, the five different Kulin nations uh, around Melbourne to then write some songs and be able to, you know, bring back some stories that uh, I guess we could, you know, be able to tell and, and showcase in the in the Tandarum, uh, I guess performance slash ceremony, and I guess these songs, you know, I have these stories that that are attached to them, which I guess are quite important, which tell you know the you know the, the local history and uh, the local culture. So I, th- I thought it would have been nice to uh, be able to bring those stories back. And be able to, you know, give them a, 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 another life and a, another context, and um, yeah, another reason for people to, you know, hear them. So I, I guess having, you know, having that idea, but also, you know, my love of the, the string quartet uh, writing, uh, I, I wanted to, you know, bring those two together, and I, I, I guess. Um, yeah, I was lucky enough to you know have Urim uh, Boy and uh, Recital Center having an uh, open mind enough to uh, let, let it take place. And you've got some. I mean, Emma Donovan's going to be appearing as part of this as well. I've read, which is pretty yeah, exciting. Yeah, 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 for sure. So uh, Emma Donovan uh, and uh, the the other singer that'll be joining us will be uh, an opera singer, uh, John Wayne Parsons. So yeah, I guess some you know quite big voices, and. Yeah, they they both were a part of Tandarum as well. So, yeah, they, they are quite familiar with the material. They've you know we've sung these songs together, uh, pretty much only with clapsticks, you know, in, with the Tandarum performances, and uh, like the, 
The, the songs were also, um, you know, like written by, um, so Emma Donovan and Delene Briscoe, uh, you know, going out into the communities to, you know, write these songs with the, uh, w- with the local mobs. And then I, I guess that, that a lot of them have, you know, like beautiful melodies which, you know, also lend themselves to, you know, just being something with you know, beyond, um, you know, beyond clapsticks and voice, you know, somewhere where you can, you know, have harmonies and counter melodies and all of that. Um, and also, I also really like this idea of uh, imagining what it might have been like you know, when, you know, late in 1770 or, you know, 1788 when, you know, uh, I guess Europeans arrived. Um, well, I guess they arrived, you know, before then, the Dutch and all that. But if then when they when they came here, instead of, uh, I guess, imposing, you know, their culture on, you know, the, the Aboriginal people, then, you know, what would it have been like to have, you know, people come here and it'd be more of a respectful sharing of culture and sharing of, um, uh, you know, technology and, uh, and even like uh, uh, religion even. Um, and, you know, it could have been, you know, this peaceful, you know, amazing thing. Uh, I think, you know, now, you know, you still have, uh, you know, places where, uh, you, you have you know clashes of cultures, and then probably the more technologically dominant culture might uh, you know uh, take uh, precedence. But you know, if if we do have this opportunity to you know share on, on an equal footing, uh, you know what could be made, and so that that was kind of in the back of my mind as well when I was you know writing these pieces. Yeah, I was going to ask about this idea of of musical harmony, and you just described it really beautifully there. So, uh, was that? that feeling shared with the musicians, other musicians you've worked with on this piece? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I definitely felt that through the whole uh, Tandarum process. Uh, it was something that was, I guess, as much as possible uh, driven by the the, the local uh, cool and uh, you know, traditional owners to you know be able to have their songs and stories realised. And I guess as musicians... Um, uh, Delene, Emma, and I would, um, yeah, you know, I guess fill in the gaps of the the musical understanding and be able to uh, translate, uh, you know, some of those, uh, you know, like the phrasings and the melodies to um, you'd be easily learnt by the dancers and such, and uh, and then, yeah, I guess being able to. Um, to, to be able to work with the the string quartet as well, um, it was yeah quite nice I guess within the uh, you know within the boundaries of our um, our schedules to be able to you know have that time to you know sit down and, and talk through you know what you know what's possible you know what will sound good um, and yeah how we can I guess you know create something which is I, I guess not only you know going to be it, enjoyable for us but uh, is going to um, you know, relate to a, um, an audience. If you just tuned in, we're speaking to James Henry all about his uh, collaboration and event coming up as part of the Yirrumboy Festival Coolin Tide Strings. It's all happening at the Melbourne Recital Centre Foyer on Wednesday the 10th of May. That's this coming Wednesday. And um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the broader Yirrumboy program because it's it's in its first year, but it's kind of... There have been other First Nations Aboriginal festivals in Melbourne before. Have you been down to anything at Yirrumboy yet this year? Yeah, I was there for the opening uh, ceremony, and so that was um, yeah, that was a great party, and um, I guess it was organised by the 
um, I believe he's the creative director of uh, Il Bidri or uh, artistic director, producer, something of the sort, uh, Ben uh, Gratz. So we, um, yeah, had, you know, quite a uh, camp uh, opening and so there was, you know, some amazing uh, drag performers and uh, burlesque performers uh, doing some amazing stuff there. Um, Yeah, some great DJs uh, and and also, I I guess... um, yeah, some uh, some roving uh, performers as well to who are you know showcasing the different things that they're doing around the the festival. So uh, yeah, I've got a, a busy week ahead of me. I'll probably uh, head along <laughs> to uh, there's a bit of a circus uh, performance, which is a collaboration with uh, Circus Oz. Uh, that's on on tonight, I think tomorrow night. Um, and yeah, there, there's heaps of stuff. I'm also a photographer as well, so I'm lucky enough to <laughs> to get along and, and shoot some of these uh, events too. Well, you've so. got beautiful eye. I mean, I, that, that's where I see you mostly around. Um, the, the description for this piece is that you're a musical renaissance man, but that doesn't include the photography in that um, uh, that description of you because you are you get beautiful candid shots. That's your kind of thing, isn't it? To get out there in community events, musical events, and capture the crowd, but also the performers. It's, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess um, yeah, being an insider in the, uh, I guess, music scene, it's nice to be able to, you know, have that, um, uh, you know, opportunity to then be able to, you know, capture things and, and know what, you know, might be, you know, uh, appealing to, you know, who I'm you're taking the photo of, but also, uh, you know, where, uh, in what context, you know, some images might be used. Um, yeah, and it's also, I guess, an honour to, you know, be a documenter of the, the Aboriginal community. Uh, yeah, just, um, you know, recently, um, you know, there was an exhibition of work, um, um, yeah, just because it's uh, Monday morning, I can't, I can't think, I can think, think of her name, but she, she documented, uh, you know, the Aboriginal community of Melbourne for um, yeah, f- for decades and uh, just going to see that exhibition and, yeah, from 10 to 20 years ago, um, I- images, I, I realised the importance of, you know, being able to, uh, you know, mark these moments in time uh, as well as, uh, you know, be able to, you know, have images that the community can, um, you know, be you know, very, you know, pleased and, and proud about and also artists, you know, be able to make use of as well for their own, you know, musical um, progression, uh, progressions. Do you, do you do a lot of that photography work off your own bat, do you? Oh, not quite. No, I, I used to. No, you kind of booked yeah. it to go to to go along to some of these events, but they're not all big events. I've seen you at little events and as well yeah. as kind of larger scale. Um, you know, two cameras around your neck. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> I well, well, I do see the photography is a bit more like my day job. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I, I do like to get out, um, you know, take photos, uh, you know, like here and there for, um, I, I guess, for things that, you know, I know are going to be, you know, quite photogenic. Uh, I, I love, you know, taking the camera with me when I travel. Um, yeah, but for the most part, um, yeah, I'm I'm booked by, uh, you know, particular organisations that, um, yeah, w- would like their shows documented. Yeah. And so, um, so what's next for you after this project at, at Urine Boy? Have you got other things in the pipeline that you're working on? Um, oh, th- th- there's always uh, there's always something coming up. Uh, oh, something I'm looking forward to though uh, is heading down to Dark Mofo, uh, performing with the Buried Country Show. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to be opening that, and 
yeah, so I get up and I play a couple of country songs and I think they got me DJing as well. That's down been there. really successful, hasn't it, Buried Country? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been great. Um, well, I guess you do have uh, you know a certain amount of people that know of it from the book and the movie and uh, in the CD of course so it, it just seemed like a, a natural uh, progression you know for them to you know put together the live show you know while we um, you know while we still have you know some of our uh, you know more um, you know senior uh, performers but also to you know showcase some of these younger artists coming through and um yeah just to also um yeah i guess reach this um yeah this audience of you know country music lovers that wouldn't have you know had the chance to you know hear the um you know the uh the Roger Knoxes and um you know i, I guess uh, you know recently passed away only uh, Oriel uh, Andrew um and yeah so it's um yeah, it's amazing to you know then you have had this opportunity to you know have this uh, uh, you have this stage which stretches across different generations. So, for example, um, you know, we've got uh, you know Uncle Roger Knox, and his son is one of the band leaders, uh, you know, on guitar, um, uh, Buddy Knox. And then uh, Buddy Knox's son uh, is a bass player in the band. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so I, I guess having that um, as well uh, is, um, yeah, I guess I'm there, you know, singing my grandfather's songs and sometimes uh, my mother is involved as well. Yeah. Um, and, and Jimmy she, Little's your grandfather, yeah, yes. yeah, if people don't know. But I wonder, um, you know, Roger uh, Knox came in here once and played his favourite country tunes over about an hour once wow. on on triple l god that's going back a few years it shows how long we've been doing this show but uh he is such a great storyteller does he tell stories through very country as well or is it really the um the songs yeah for yeah no well uh, you know we do have a chance to um you know have a bit of a yarn yep. uh, on the mic to um you know i guess um you know give, give a bit beyond um, yes, the, what what the songs can tell, you know, especially when you have these amazing stories of, um, of you know where these songs originated from. So uh, yeah, Uncle Roger does. Uh, um, um, now yeah, I'm, I'm still uh, losing. Still Monday morning. Still <laughs> lo- losing names. Um, but um, like he, yeah, he's able to, I, I guess, go back to uh, you know the, the origins of these songs and. Uh, in particular, the, the what was happening around those times that uh, you know prompted these you know songwriters to um, you know to write about you know certain you know uh, content you know whether it's like political, uh, spiritual, personal. Uh, so yeah, some people like to talk uh, a little bit more than others, and um, and uh, there's just such great personalities that uh, you know I guess. You, you can probably just you know listen to an hour of uh, you know them telling stories about. Does, does it change much between the performances? Because I heard amazing things from uh, the uh, the last show here in Melbourne. It might have been the last one at the Recital Centre. I think for last year's Melbourne Festival. Does the show itself kind of mutate and change based on those stories that that people are, are telling? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Well, um, uh, it. it I guess it depends on who's uh, going to be uh, available uh, for some of the shows. It, it travels around the country. Uh, well, it is at the moment 
um, so, uh, you know, certain people can make it to certain shows. So, you know, that changes the set a bit. Um, I guess we were, you know, quite lucky to, you know, have uh, Ani Oriol to, you know, perform in, you know, some of the first shows um, before she passed away. So, um, yeah, I, I guess... Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, my mother is able to, you know, come to, you know, the, the shows depending on her um, uh, availabilities. Uh, and um, I think, uh, yeah, Leah Flanagan as well. Um, yeah, she uh, recently had a baby or, or she's about to. Um, it's it's around that time. You've got to so. keep track of people, don't you? Mm. I was thinking with the, the kinds of people that you work with, James, I mean, it's a lot. A lot of a lot of different people, but do you find yourself gravitating to those that also have about a million other things that they do? So you're always trying to schedule each other into a moment where you can work together, and they're off doing something, and then you go and do something else. Are you working yeah. like that with people mostly? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I guess the um, yeah the buried country and the uh, Ulumbra, uh, you know, which Black Gold is from. Yeah, just being able to have, uh, you know, have this brief moment in time. It, it might be, you know, a, a couple of rehearsals and a show. Uh, but, yeah, there's this uh, amazing, you know, intense, you know, focused period where you, you're with all, all of these other people that are, I guess, on uh, quite parallel, uh, you know, career paths. And then, yeah, just just being together for this um i guess amazing you know sharing of of music and, and culture uh yeah I, I feel it's um yeah it's something that you know i'm i guess i'm always willing to put my hand up for and and um yeah quite blessed to be a part of and um, we are fast running out of time, but uh, we started off this conversation talking about Cool and Tired Strings, which is happening as part of the Yurimboy Festival. And uh, do you anticipate that this will have a, a life beyond Yurimboy, this particular project, or will this be kind of a, a once-off? I, I would like to see it. Um, uh, I've, I've just Also, I guess it was partly in uh, being inspired by uh, Deborah Cheatham's uh, you know, success with the uh, Pecan Summer. And just being able to bring Aboriginal stories to a new audience. And I guess, um, yeah, I I feel that, uh, you know, the the important thing is, you know, about a lot of the the messages in, you know, the Aboriginal stories rather than, you know, the the musicality as such. And I guess, you know, the String Quartet, you know, offers a platform for... Uh, I guess you know different stages, different um, uh, you know p- people who go- are going to be moved by music, uh, d- different styles of music. So yeah, it, w- it would be great um, you know down the track to you know, be able to have this as a you know potential format for other uh, other songs and stories, which uh, you know can bring Aboriginal culture and uh, you know, a- Aboriginal language to to um, more people. Well, uh, Cool and Tired Strings is the name of the show we're talking about. It's all happening at uh, the Melbourne Recital Centre Foyer. It's a free event Wednesday, May the 10th uh, at 6pm. So that's this coming Wednesday. And uh, if you want to head along, you can uh, just check out the Melbourne Recital Centre website and head into the foyer and uh, feel free to talk, but don't you know keep your voice a little bit lower. Though I think everyone will be um, blown out of the park by Emma Donovan there as well she's you know she's got a voice on her yeah i'm very (laughs) blessed to have her along so um yeah uh, it's going to be a treat 
Well, James Henry's been our guest. Thanks so much for coming on Triple R and hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having Good me. Good to see you, James. See ya. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.